0: Hello and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, season two of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Iris Komporosos Afanasiu and I'm an Associate Professor of Sociology at University College London.
1: I'm Adam Kingsmith, I'm a PhD candidate in politics at York University. This season our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. And my name is Max Haven. I'm Canada Research Chair in the Radical
2: Imagination at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay. And it's my great pleasure this episode to welcome two people whose work has been a great inspiration to us on our project and our thinking about conspiracies, Claire Birchall and Peter Knight. And I'll introduce you to them through their biographies first, and then I'll ask them to say a few words uh, about, about their past work. Um, Claire Birchell is a reader in contemporary culture at King's College London. Uh, she's author of Knowledge Goes Pop, From Conspiracy Theory to Gossip, and also Radical Secrecy, The Ends of Transparency in Datified America. And along with Peter Knight, who's also joining us today, she is writing a book on COVID-19 conspiracy theories Uh, which is the result of a one-year AHRC grant on this topic. And the aforementioned Peter Knight is a professor in American Studies at the University of Manchester. His research is on conspiracy theories and the economic humanities, and he's the author of Conspiracy Culture from 2000, The Kennedy Assassination from 2007, and Reading the Market from 2016. He's also the editor of Conspiracy Nation from 2002, Conspiracy Theories in American History and Encyclopedia from 2004, and the Routledge Handbook on Conspiracy Theories that came out a couple of years ago in 2020. He also directs the EU-funded Comparative Analysis of Conspiracy Theories Network and a project funded by the AHRC on conspiracy theories and the pandemic that we are recording under now. And he is currently leading the Everything is Connected AHRC-funded team project that explores how conspiracy theories have changed in the age of the internet Wonderful to have you both here. Thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to be here.
3: Thanks for inviting us.
2: To begin by asking each of you in turn about how you got interested in this topic of conspiracy theories and to give us a little potted summary of how your careers both have have developed around this topic since uh, beginning. and. And Peter, you've been doing this for a long time. Maybe let's begin with you. Uh, you know, we just heard about this incredible, uh, the incredible work that you've done over the last 20 years or more um on this topic. How did you, how did it begin for you? Uh this this fascination and and how do you think it's changed over those decades? So I began
3: with an interest in post-war American literature and culture. And I began with a fairly simple question, which is why is it that so many prominent novelists and filmmakers have been fascinated with the aesthetics of conspiracy, or in effect, what's the connection between conspiracy plots and literary plots. So I kind of was asking myself that question. And most of the scholarly literature and uh, and such as it was, was mainly following the work of Richard Hofstadter, the historian writing in the 50s and 60s. The kind of took a kind of psychologizing or pathologizing approach that seed that saw the um repeated outbursts of conspiracy thinking in US history and culture as episodes of of irrational, emotional paranoia. And that to me just didn't seem to make sense in terms of the kinds of sophisticated, self reflexive, and often quite ironic forms of conspiracy culture that I was coming across. So that, that's where I began. After that, I moved more into a kind of more, more forms of um, popular culture studies of conspiracy theories, but it began with literature.
2: And uh, I mean, we'll get into this a little bit when we discuss your, your article, which we read um, to talk about, but how do you see things having changed since then? I mean, early on, I think we, we were sort of in the post 9-11 moment. Now we're in the post, post-truth post moment. Uh, have you, do, do you think there's been a kind of major shift, both in the landscape of how conspiracies are being propounded uh, and also how critics and theorists are looking at them?
3: Yeah, it's it's tempting to make kind of grand sweeping claims about uh, radical changes. Certainly my own work, um, that book from 2000 was trying to argue that that there'd been a shift from kind of uh, classic taste conspiracism to some form of postmodern conspiracism that was in this kind of grey zone of um, uh, uh, of kind of self-reflexive, but also, so it was not a kind of a symptom of some uh, popular paranoia. So I was arguing that back in the kind of 90s. But I think at the time I was really, and I was thinking about some of the kind of uh, forms of conspiracy culture coming out of the, the counterculture of the 60s and 70s and through into the 80s. But what I was really ignoring was that kind of often dominant strand of kind of right-wing militia-style conspiracy thinking. I was kind of strategically ignoring it because um, I just could, could never, uh, I just never found it particularly kind of interesting. Um, I then moved away from conspiracy theories as a research area, but came back to it um, in effect with Trump. Because people were asking me, so does this not undermine everything you ever said about conspiracy theories? And part of the answer is yes, it did. Um, Trump is kind of did seem to kind of be significantly different, seemed to be a long way from the kinds of conspiracy culture I was talking about. But at the same time, so many features of what we would recognize or what people call this kind of post truth. Uh, moments seem to be uh, very much present in the kinds of conspiracy culture I'd been examining um, from, you know, the kind of 60s onwards.
2: Mm-hmm. Claire, let's turn to you uh, for a moment before we return to the work in detail. How, how did you get into this topic and and how have you seen things change since you started researching it?
4: Yeah, so my PhD and first book were really trying to examine the idea, well, to to argue against pathologizations of conspiracy theorists and try and argue that there is actually um, a much closer relationship between so-called legitimate knowledges and so-called illegitimate knowledges, like conspiracy theory. I call them popular knowledges in my book. Um, And what I'm doing there, really, is trying to you know, sort of argue against this idea that conspiracy theorists or theories are completely other, that they're sort of out there, that they have nothing to do at all with the way that um, even academics think about the way that they think and the the way that they know and the way that they interpret. So um, I'm really trying to sort of be self-reflexive in that book. I mean, I was coming out of a cultural studies tradition. And so my argument really there is, Cultural studies rather than sort of othering conspiracy theories would be better off trying to think about the close relationship that has to conspiracy theories. Um, and so, so I was sort of trying to make um, quite a philosophical argument, really, about that close relationship. But it has, even though it's quite a sort of philosophical argument, it has lots of ramifications, I think, for how we approach conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories, how we talk about them, um, you know, what we do with them, how we approach the so-called problem of them, and all of those kinds of things. So I was really trying to sort of look around and think about how they'd been talked about already, um, including sort of symptomatic readings of them, including arguments that just sort of say, well, they're just not really Proper forms of politics, um, you know, that they're a poor person's cognitive mapping, and actually just trying to dig down into those explanations and pull them apart a little bit. Um, but like Peter, I've had to revisit some of those arguments since the rise of Trump and since the alt-right has completely seen or seems to have sort of completely commandeered some of the means and ways of thinking about and, and the tropes of conspiracy. Um, and, and of course, there's this accusation that relativists or postmodernists, um, as some people might call me or my argument, have sort of have sort of made, paved the way for um, post-truth. And so I'm I'm trying to grapple with that accusation and trying to think about my own position and trying to come to terms with this much darker strain of conspiracy theorizing and thinking and action actually um, that as Peter says was around in the 1990s in the form of militia movements but was sort of obscured by this much more playful um, ludic sense sensibility really and I'm really interested in how the right commandeered that irony and playfulness and has sort of turned it back in this counter hegemonic movement yeah so that's that's where we are now and of course we're in a very specific moment so we're trying to think about all of those things in relationship to COVID-19.
0: And I wonder if we can uh, take a a step a step back and for also for the sake of our read our listeners who might not be familiar with some of the some of this work but also some of the work uh, against which you have argued or, or which you have problematized in, in your uh, so far in your books that you had just you have just mentioned and I'm thinking here especially of the work of uh, uh, Hofstadter who you both mentioned and I know that the piece that uh, from from the forthcoming book that uh, we will be discussing uh, Claire your piece on uh, the paranoid style for sale uh, which you very much, kind of return to uh, an engagement with Hofstede's notion of the paranoid politics uh, to make some very interesting connections with um, uh, neoliberal capitalism and uh, what you call conspiracy entrepreneurs. But I'm I'm wondering if if we can, because he's an important figure in in both of your work, so I'm wondering if you can just uh, walk us through some of the basic um, arguments made in in that work and uh, the limitations as you see them, the core limitations. So that's a question, either of you. uh,
3: (laughs) Claire, do you want, Claire, if you talk about Hofstetter, I could also quickly talk about Popper.
4: Um, Yeah, so with, um, so Rich Hofstetter, a famous historian, writes this very um, seminal essay on the paranoid style in American politics in the 1960s and he's really trying he's looking around him and he's he's noticing you know a sort of recurrent political style that seems to you know is fear-mongering and um, accuses certain groups or others of conspiracy um, he, and and so there's this sense in which he's um, He's trying to locate different forms of of what he thinks of as paranoia in these different political movements. But the problem with his essay is, I mean, I think it's quite useful in lots of ways. He notices lots of rhetorical flourishes, this sort of mode of othering that happens um, all the time in politics. Um, But what's really problematic about his essay, really, is that although he claims to only be using... Paranoia as a metaphor. He actually ends up pathologizing um, conspiracy theorists. I mean, he never uses the word conspiracy theorist in the essay, actually, but he ends up really pathologizing um, people. So um, there's lots of other problems with his argument. And Peter, you might want to <laughs> say some of the other problems if you if you know.
3: Yeah, one of the reasons people have taken issue with the Hofstadter essay is that he basically kind of just produces a a, a list uh, a list of examples from different historical moments you know, which is which is fantastic but it's some um, uh, the problem is for one thing he doesn't include the the kind of revolutionary era and the founding fathers and you're left wondering well <laughs> they seem to fit the bill in so many ways so why have you left those out? Is it the idea that Um, you're always applying the label of paranoia or conspiracy theorist to people you don't approve of. Um, So that idea of kind of you're always othering, it's always other people who are conspiracy theorists. I, of course, am a kind of legitimate bona fide researcher. And then the other problem with Hofstadter is, although he kind of rightly latches on to some of the more extreme anti-Semitic rhetoric of the populist movement, the farmers and kind of anti-capitalist movement of the 1890s. A lot of people have felt troubled by that because it suggests that all forms of um, anti-capitalist dissent are necessarily paranoid, anti-Semitic, and therefore illegitimate. And so, you know, that kind of gives us pause for thought. Um, The other thing I would say about the Hofstadter piece is that he's one of a number of historians and sociologists writing in the 50s and 60s who are, in effect, inventing not just a label, but the very category of conspiracy theory. Um, The term first comes into use um, with... Uh, the work of Karl Popper, writing in the late 1940s. And Popper, you know, was the first person to really use the term conspiracy theory in a a kind of recognizably modern way. I mean, the words conspiracy and theory had been used uh, before in the 1880s and 1890s, but not in the way we would understand it now. And we need to recognise that this is not kind of just an innocent coining of a new term that is uh, useful but instead we need to kind of think about the way that this group of intellectuals writing in the aftermath of Stalinism are moving away from their earlier left-leaning intellectual trajectory and they're turning instead to Freud rather than Marx, turning to kind of more psychological explanations. And that's certainly where Hofstadt is coming from. But we also need to kind of recognise that when um, Popper coins the phrase the conspiracy theory of society, he's coming out of that kind of very early moment of neoliberalism, taking issue with, um, with Marxism, and trying to identify an intellectual flaw that he believes is at the heart of conspiracy theories. For him, the problem with conspiracy thinking is that it sees agency rather than structure, and that it refuses to understand that there might be unintended consequences of intended actions. And really, as far as I understand it, and this is maybe not <laughs> well, how other people would, but I, I have a suspicion that in effect um Popper is making a neoliberal argument about the um the futility of central planning. So it's an argument against Stalinism, in effect. And so in effect, he's making an equation between the fantasy that you can know everything um, in advance and therefore you can rationally predict the consequences of actions. Um, And he says that that is what uh, is wrong with a conspiracy theory, because it suggests this fantasy of somehow complete and utter knowledge of all Current conditions and therefore future consequences of of actions. And I think he's making a connection between that idea and um, a the kind of Stalinist fantasy of a kind of cybernetic economy in which everything is known by the central planners and therefore we can kind of rationally predict um, what's going to happen in advance. I'm not certain other people would agree with that, but the larger point about the intellectual context in which conspiracy theory is identified as a social problem um, comes out of this kind of anxious moment of intellectuals fearing kind of mass political movements in the 50s and 60s. They're thinking about McCarthyism, um, but they're coming out of an intellectual tradition that has been concerned with trying to understand the mass psychology of fascism, of how, in effect, we ended up with Auschwitz.
1: Yeah, and I just wanted to follow up, Peter, quickly um, there, because I think there's some really, really interesting points that you're flushing out here about um this sort of you know, the tension around conspiracy theory as a a kind of frame to mask power and to mask kind of the rise of the right. And I was just hoping you could maybe elaborate for our listeners a bit on what you call the territory between conspiracy and not conspiracy and why you think that's maybe an important uh, thing to study, especially today.
3: Yeah, I mean... The point about the label conspiracy theory is that it identifies something that is kind of you know recognizable and as claire's work has demonstrated so much of that work in um theorizing about conspiracy theory has been this anxious attempt to draw a dividing line between legitimate forms of knowledge and these illogical or illegitimate uh, or irrational forms of knowledge which we label conspiracy theory my and you know when i think you know I, I fully understand the impulse behind that because it seems you know Intuitively plausible that there is a way of thinking about the world that we collectively agree to call conspiracy theory, and in some ways are grateful that we now have the label um, that prior to kind of you know the, the late forties or really kind of since the nineteen sixties we we didn't have. And yeah, um, uh, and, and, and you know, part of the, the work of that label is to suggest that. Um, thinking in terms of structural causes is the way that any sophisticated thinker understands the nature of historical causation since the rise of the social sciences, Darwin, Marx, and Freud in, in the 19th century. And that idea is kind of always in opposition to the supposedly kind of mistaken idea of conspiracy theories that sees everything that happens as the result of individual intention. So it personalizes what we should, in theory, understand as these kind of large, impersonal structural causes. My my suspicion, though, and this is coming out of a reading of um, works of conspiracy fiction and films, is that often the way that we imagine in popular culture conspiracy now is much closer to what we would call anti-conspiracy theory or a sociological understanding, that often the conspiracy that's imagined in popular culture is not a small, tight-knit cabal of ruthless plotters, but instead is this kind of amorphous, vast, ever-expanding conspiracy that seems to almost resemble what we might understand as kind of impersonal structure.
0: Really interesting stuff, and we definitely we will come back to this last observation, Peter, about this this more recent trend in the form of conspiracy movements. Uh, but before we do that, I, I wondered I wanted to ask Claire a question about um, her uh, definition, her concept that she uh, that Claire you use in in this piece that we're discussing today uh, of conspiracy entrepreneurs, and I think it's uh, since we've just heard. About this intellectual history of rich intellectual history of uh, conspiracy uh, theorizing and understandings, Uh, I I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the uh, the shift, uh, the historical shift that you trail in your piece from Hofstadter's time. Uh, in this, in this, in this 1960s, all the way to what you call today's conspiracy capitalism, and and, and specifically, uh, so the links with neoliberal capitalism uh, between uh, as they uh, are encompassed, captured in this notion you offer us the, of conspiracy entrepreneurs, which I think is very interesting because it's also a little bit maybe there is a tension in the concept itself. There is a little bit of a paradox between uh, common understandings of, of entrepreneurship and conspiratorialism. So. Um, Yeah, I I wonder if if you could walk us through this.
4: Yeah, I mean, at one really simple level, I think, you know, it's clear that there are actors on the internet who are profiting from conspiracy theories and forms of paranoia and doing so in quite sort of blatant and obvious ways like Alex Jones, So these clear, you know, you might call them conspiracy entrepreneurs or conspiracy gurus, but they're clearly um, themselves a part of the brand that they are selling, like that they become that in some way, they embody that. So I think there's a kind of, you know, just a basic understanding of the entrepreneur in that way. But I think what I was trying to get at in this piece also is this kind of sense in which under neoliberalism, the entrepreneur is really, the idea of the entrepreneur is more about An entrepreneur of the self, the self that has to constantly um, reinvent itself, to um, align itself with the needs of the market and all of those kinds of demands on us as, as subjects. And I was trying to think about, you know, in some ways it can seem like these conspiracy theorists or, theory, you know, gurus might be the opposite of the sort of modern entrepreneur or the neoliberal entrepreneur. You know, the sort of neoliberal entrepreneur has to be very nifty and, you know, um, constantly adapting and all of those things. Whereas conspiracy theorists, I think we assume that they are sort of, you know, stuck in, you know, forms of grievance and can't really evolve and and move quickly and so I was thinking you know at one level there's they seem to be opposites Um, but actually I think what's happened is that these conspiracy entrepreneurs like Alex Jones have become very good at absorbing the uh, an apparent counterforce to neoliberalism actually and to sort of use both together in order to um, exploit the market as much as, as they possibly can to yeah just to basically sell their sell their goods, sell their brand, you know, that he is part of it, he's sort of, it's very hard to separate out what Alex Jones sells and who Alex Jones is, <laughs> it's really not clear, I mean, actually he makes most of his money on um, supplements, right, but <laughs> but in that sense, you, you know, you wouldn't even necessarily think of that automatically, that was a surprise to me when I was doing this research, um, but it seems really obvious now because, uh, there's such a big markup <laughs> in, uh, in supplements.
1: I just wanted to follow up with you there, there, Claire. I mean, I, there's a couple of things I'm thinking about, I guess, one of them was it'd be really great to hear maybe uh, some of your thoughts on this relationship between kind of conspiracy capitalism and surveillance capitalism, you know, because obviously lots of folks are talking about that surveillance capitalism. Zubov, is lots of other people for kind of how data becomes the engine that sort of drives power, that drives the market. Um, is that the same kind of thing? Is there something different going on with the kind of conspiracy capitalism? Is the Alec Jones stuff a bit more boutique or is it like, you know, maybe a bit more of, uh, of uh, that tension a little bit?
4: Well, in the in the piece, I I talk about these conspiracy entrepreneurs, and obviously their platforms. You know, they use platforms, internet platforms, to um, to operate on, and so they are sort of one level in which this this new market is operating. But then there's another level to this um, analysis, and that's really just to think about the infrastructure of the platforms themselves. And obviously, I don't want to conflate platforms. I think each different platform has different affordances and therefore produces different sorts of relationships with its audiences and uh, makes money in very different ways and, and has a different concept of monetization um, and different strategies. But at some level, it's not just about the people trying to make money, you know, sort of, sort of grifters on these platforms, um, which yield to them in, in very particular kinds of ways. but. It's also about the platforms themselves and how they make money out of, as you say, surveillance capitalism. So the collection of data, the collection of user data to, um, you know, to sell to either third parties or, you know, for other sorts of um, ways to monetize that data. And so what we were trying to think about is the different layers at which uh, commodification of conspiracy theories operate, because actually platforms... Um, particularly social media, we know makes more money out of um, inflammatory remarks and comments than it does from, you know, kind <laughs> remarks and comments. So there's a way in which, um, you know, essentially social media are, are content agnostic. Um, they don't really care what you're posting about at all, really, unless... Um, you know, as long as it makes money. And, of course, what COVID has done, I mean, it started a little bit before COVID, obviously, with, with Trump and some and issues that were brought up under the Trump administration about disinformation. Um, but really, COVID has really made social media have to think about what's on their platform and take responsibility for it, if for no other reason other than just for kind of, you know, how they look to... Um, regulatory bodies or the government or whatever. So to continue to be able to make money, they have to be seen to be doing something about disinformation, including conspiracy theories. But I guess at the end of this piece, I was trying to think about that something like Shoshana Zuboff's um, idea of surveillance capitalism, the way that she describes that, she does it in very conspiracist terms so she, you know you could argue that she herself is employing a, a kind of Hofstadterian paranoid style in order to get her message across and and I think that lots of people you know not not this isn't an, an argument original to me but lots of people have sort of fought back against that idea because because the because data is not just that which is is that we that is taken from us as we uh, experience the internet but it's also that which enables us to forge communities and you know make meaningful connections and so um i think this is a phrase of one of our colleagues um jonathan uh, gray who talks about data worlds and the way that we inhabit data worlds you know can be very meaningful so i think there's there's a sort of different side to that so actually it's not, my term is not uh, um, conspiracy capitalism. It's just, I say at the end of the piece, you know, maybe we should call it conspiracy capitalism, but like surveillance capitalism, I'm a bit wary of those terms because they suggest that capitalism is only just now becoming surveillance <laughs> or, you know, whereas obviously you could think of the beginning of racial capitalism as, you know, you think of the, of the, um, uh, the slave trade is, you know, as original sites of surveillance in that sense. So you can think of the beginnings of capitalism as originally, you know, surveillance. So I think there's a kind of problem with only just identifying those tendencies now.
0: And I think this is a good um, good way to move to another question I had, uh, which is a question for Peter. Since we're talking about this element of uh We can call it relationality. This element of connection that uh, is important in uh, movements that are uh, sort of formed around conspiracy theories. Uh, And uh, Peter, you uh, you mentioned sort of towards the end of your last answer, you began talking to us about this recent trend that you trace in your in the piece of work um, that we're discussing about uh, the form of conspiracy. a form of conspiracy, a shift uh, from a more hierarchical structure uh, to a more interconnected uh, web of different parts. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that shift and its importance, and and how it relates to, uh, I suppose, the relationship between conspiracy and capitalism, and the way in which conspiracies mirror uh, forms of uh, capitalist structures or or not.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So the traditional model of a conspiracy that comes up in conspiracy texts, say from the 18th century is a pyramid of power, a hierarchy in which um, each lower level reports to a higher level and above all of them, there is a master manipulator, pulling all the strings secretly behind the scenes and that model of power you know in, in some ways has been the fantasy at the heart of a lot of conspiracy theories the idea that somehow there is someone in control of everything behind the scenes even if what we feel like we're faced with on a daily basis is you know chaos um so um that that hierarchical fantasy of conspiracy of conspiracy has animated a lot of uh conspiracy theories both both kind of in the realm of fiction and uh kind of non-fictional materials for for a long time but i think increasingly or i see evidence of conspiracy theories where um in narrative terms for example the there's always a rush to the end. There's always a rush to the grand revelation. That's how, you know, Hollywood thrillers work. But often, what I think we get now is the idea that the the grand revelation is always just one step further, or the conspiracy goes ever bigger. You know, that's the kind of um, model of inherent corruption um, that. Is central to say um, hard-boiled detective fiction, you know, from the '30s onwards, or you get it in those gritty 1970s conspiracy theory, uh, conspiracy thrillers from the US. This sense that um, the the contours uh, of the conspiracy that is being unveiled by the substitute detective hero figure that we follow what's being, you know, what's being uncovered is this ever larger, ever more kind of Byzantine conspiracy. And I begin to wonder, therefore, what the model of um, conspiracy uh, has begun to shift to, and it seems to me to shift from a hierarchy to a network, with the idea that each connection is not Uh, leading upwards to a master manipulator but a sense that you can endlessly reframe um, the story within a larger story of power or the location of power as Foucault would suggest is always always elsewhere. There is no headquarters um, to power. So at that stage then conspiracy theory seems to almost become its very opposite, or it seems to kind of give a glimpse of an understanding of power that um, is very much in tune with forms of post-structuralist thinking. Or we might kind of recognise that there are ways in which conspiracy theory is then mirrored by forms of contemporary corporate capitalism. The shift from those, you know, just thinking in terms of uh, visual illustrations, you shift from a classic uh, org chart, an organization chart um, from the 1920s that is all kind of pyramid of power leading up to the CEO to modern forms of corporate organization that kind of have this fantasy of uh, a flat, horizontal um, form of organization or even the idea that a corporation in a sense no longer actually exists a corporation is merely a nexus of contracts with no kind of actual um, tight-knit body of corporate personality at the heart of it so you know it's at that stage you know I'm wondering um, whether conspiracy theories, are the kind of foolish, paranoid, backward forms of thinking that they're they're made out to be. You know, don't get me wrong, most of the time they are, but at the same time, they seem to be trying to latch on to ways of representing or ways of making sense of forms of corporate identity, corporate, or what's you know, what's called the legal fiction of corporate personality, the idea that. Actions can emerge out of these complex structures without necessarily any idea of there being uh, an individual agent or an individual person responsible behind it. And I think conspiracy theories, therefore, um, are kind of, to me, seem kind of culturally significant because they are one of the few ways in which popular culture grapples with this these kind of these larger problems of how we understand corporate capitalism for example
1: and then just to follow up then i think this is a question that could really be be put to either either of you i mean so i guess the sense i'm getting and what i really liked for example about the piece that we looked at of yours peter is that you had some of the aesthetics in in the article and we could get a sense of like what these kind of changing relationships from like the pyramid scheme to the kind of the so-called crazy board of, of the network and I guess, and, and so to your point, I guess, just to maybe elaborate, and, and I think this is a question for you as well, Claire, because you talk so much in the piece about the relationship between conspiracies and, and, and technology. Is just, you know, do we think that this kind of shift from the kind of like pyramid understanding of, of conspiracies and everything being a pyramid scheme to this networked understanding of conspiracies kind of maps then onto this change um, in kind of corporate power and the rise of like the tech sector and the integration of sort of technology and, and social media with kind of culture and, and power and, and popular discourse.
4: I mean, one of the things that um, the research grant that Peter and I are now um, studying is the, this question of what difference does the internet make to conspiracy theories? And that's not really the same as what you're asking, but I think it's it's related. Um, you know, there, there really has to be a kind of historicization of both pre-internet and internet conspiracy theories and pre-internet and uh sorry and a historicization of the different stages of the internet right because so so many times we might say well okay we think you know imagine if someone says well it looks like networked conspiracy theories directly mirror net the network of of um of the internet um but of course the internet itself has been through so many different phases and that that image or fantasy or maybe sometimes reality of the network um doesn't really correspond with all of those phases of the internet i would argue so we'd need to like really think about what's going on there and that that's what we're going to (laughs) do in the next three years but yeah peter do you want to add anything
3: no, I think that that captures that captures the the problem. It, you know, it's this idea of has there emerged a new aesthetic of conspiracy uh, in the age of the internet? Is and and does a new aesthetic tell us something significant about um, the changing nature of conspiracy theory, or is it just? A new visual style that has that has no meaning, and so yes, you mentioned the idea of the, the the crazy wall from from Hollywood films. You know that's now become the visual shorthand for conspiracy theory. And on the one hand, you know it's um, uh, it kind of taps straight back into Hofstadter and the paranoid style. It's the idea that you know someone um, is lost in. A fantasy world of their own making, and you know, um, they are they're they're kind of you know paranoid, everything, everything is is part of this kind of grand conspiracy that they imagine. And yet, at the same time, I think the the crazy board does capture this this um this sense that what that the conspiracy that's being revealed or the conspiracy that's being imagined can barely fit on, you know, a single notice board, that that's often the trope, that it takes over the entire wall, that the red string kind of amplifies further and further. Um, And, you know, in the past, I've been interested in the work of the American artist, conceptual artist, Mark Lombardi, um, who produced these amazing kind of huge 10-foot tall, 10-foot wide, hand-drawn, pencil diagrams or kind of constellations of the relationship between um, all of these names and institutions in that he was reading in the newspaper he would clip out uh, all of these newspaper articles and he tried for his own sake to make sense of it all by putting this together in the form of a diagram and you're left with always the problem that looked at up close. The wealth of detail is is kind of, you know, devastating and overwhelming, and it suggests all kinds of kind of nefarious connections between governments and corporations and finance and so on. But of course, you're lost in the detail, you have no sense of the bigger picture. And yet, if you take 10 paces back from one of these Mark Lombardi drawings, they appear then as these kind of beautiful, harmonious constellations, um, like a star chart. But of course, you can't actually read any of the detail. So you're just left with this kind of surface impression of uh, it all somehow makes sense. And that that inability or the kind of difficulty of bringing together those two perspectives, the kind of up-close view immersed in all of the, the nitty-gritty detail and the sense of the desire for the overview, the desire for the, the large-scale cognitive map, I think is um, something that is seems becoming more and more distinctive in the conspiracy as- aesthetics that we're looking at. But it's also, in many ways, the, the kind of methodological difficulty that Claire and I and the rest of our team are grappling with in our new project, Looking looking at the Internet. You know, we're trying to combine the view from the microscope of detailed, hands-on, close reading of conspiracy texts and individual tweets and memes and a sense of what conspiracy culture looks like close up with the view from the telescope the view from big data that is trying to kind of put together that bird's eye view of how conspiracy theories work on the internet at the level of kind of the the kind of tens of millions of tweets aggregated. Um,
0: this is really, uh, I think, um, a great ground on which to uh, build the, to try and build a, a final, uh, or one of the final questions, which is, I think we've have, we now have a very, a much clearer idea on um, the the various uh, problems uh, with the popular approaches to uh, the more dismissive or binary approaches to conspiracy theories and conspiracy thinking. Um, and uh, what we have done, what we have tried to do in this podcast, is to uh, consider what then the possibilities can be for the kind of critical thinking and perhaps even critical action that exceed that binary thinking and those kind of more short-sighted views of of the conspiracy world. And and if there are indeed any perhaps insights or even lessons for uh, more progressive mobilization of uh, some of the conspiratorialism uh, that uh, has been extremely regressive and and problematic uh, of our time. Um, and, And these are worlds obviously that you are both very much... Uh, engaged in and 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 you know you have you offer us this uh, very in depth kind of cultural understanding of them, but I wanted to ask if you have any thoughts on this question of formulating critique uh, in this current networked uh, landscape that you are mapping for us, um, uh, Peter. I, 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 I like the question that you pose in your in the summary of your piece that we're discussing. Uh, you, you you ask, is it possible under conditions of neoliberalism? that make it harder than ever to trace lines of corporate and government res- accountability to talk about problems of collective action and power without lapsing into conspiracy theory. Uh, and I know that this is, a, the, I think this is a concern that um, and, and under, underpins your work as well, uh, Claire. And so I, I, I wanted to have your thoughts as we go move to the end of this, around this, um, uh, this question, this issue of, Articulating critique uh, in this landscape.
4: Well, if I might start, um, one of the things that I write about in my non-conspiracy-related book <laughs> on secrecy is I'm trying to think about the possibilities of a secrecy of the left, so a progressive form of secrecy, as opposed to, you know, the left's has often been forced to jump on the liberal bandwagon of supporting transparency. And in that book, I'm really trying to think about the problems with transparency and the way that, you know, basically, transparency is never really transparent about itself (laughs) and its own kind of goals. So I'm trying to think, well, what would that mean then? What would it mean to think about um, secrecy as a progressive form of collective politics to use secrecy because the state really has a monopoly on secrecy and I think you could say also that then um, that conspiracy theorists have a monopoly on conspiracy theory and and so it's like um, I do think there are sort of productive ways in which we can occupy these spaces so my first book was about knowledge goes pop was really about trying to think well what if we as academics or as you know critics try to occupy that that so-called paranoid space and to think about um well in that case you know what does that do to our positionality what what sorts of things can we say in that position that we maybe can't say when we're trying to just you know, dismiss people or rubbish their ideas or whatever. So there's, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely grappling with these questions. And I know, Aris, that your work is sort of doing some similar sorts of manoeuvres. Um, yeah, uh, not sure I've got a concrete answer to that, but I'm definitely trying to think about that.
3: Yeah, one of the real problems of working on conspiracy theories is it is very easy to end up being uh, to kind of to, to sounding kind of too close, too sympathetic to conspiracy theorists, and then it is very easy for your work to be dismissed by um, you know uh, other academics and commentators in the media as well. You're just now kind of legitimizing um, these these crazy views, um, uh, and so I'm kind of always wary about in making, you know, making a move that sounds like we are somehow embracing conspiracy theories. In fact, you know, the, um, the first time I did a TV interview about conspiracy theories, I I was, you know, arguing against the pathologizing approach. And, <laughs> and you know, I thought I was being very careful um, to present a view that didn't um, suggest that any of the conspiracy theories were at a factual level, correct, but I was approached by many conspiracy theorists afterwards and for years afterwards, in fact, saying, "Ah, thank God, finally, someone is sticking up for us. Um, So having said that, though, um, like Claire, maybe I can draw some inspiration from my other kind of research area on the economic humanities and some of this work on the nature of um, how we how we theorize corporations and corporate responsibility, and one of the, you know, one of the kind of historical um, uh, kind of frustrations is when you realize that so much of the legal um, discussion of corporations in Late 19th century, suddenly in America, was not actually used to limit corporate power but was used um, to limit the power of unions and working class protest. And I think that we've never kind of really been able to kind of recover that moment of popular protest against corporations that doesn't, that kind of sees kind of sees an attraction to corporate forms of organization. And that was what was quite interesting about some of the union activism of the late 19th century, the recognition that possibly um, unions themselves might become um, more corporate. They might come to resemble corporations precisely because a corporation can offer a model of collective action, um that is different to the endlessly individualized forms of responsibility and agency that underpin so much kind of um, conservative politics. So conspiracy theories likewise might um even you know, almost despite themselves begin to offer a model particularly at the fringes when they begin to kind of break down onto their own contradictions of ways of thinking about collective action and collective responsibility.
0: So another fascinating conversation with Peter and Claire, I thought that in many ways this is a conversation that it could have been part of our very first episode of this series since, uh, you know, I think that the work of both speaks so much uh, to the core themes of the podcast and it just, I I find that it just lays out that rich territory, historical and cultural territory of conspiracy theories so nicely. Um, And so it was great in many ways uh, to have them expose this kind of scaffolding of uh, conspiracy thinking and theorizing uh, across the last few decades. And and also to lead us to this very confused and confusing contemporary moment um, and this more nuanced and bizarre forms of conspiratorial culture that they're, they're both looking at on online internet forums of, uh, of conspiracy. So I think a really rich episode in terms of these, these insights and also uh, very important as per our last question in terms of uh, understanding from a critical perspective, uh, from a from a progressive critical perspective, uh, how to position ourselves uh, as scholars and as activists in relation to conspiracy. I, I think it's just that for me it emphasized the point of the importance of this uh, kind of counter-pathologizing, if we can put it, uh, approach to conspiracy and how, how necessary it is to, to drive us beyond um, these mainstream binaries that we're, we're dealing with and, uh, and to link, most importantly, in this very nuanced way that Claire and Peter do, to the mechanics and the machinations of contemporary capitalism, uh, against which, or in a dialectic relationship, uh, uh, conspiracies articulate themselves. So, yes, I think a really rich episode, and uh, I think essential for everyone really uh, that is in the field to uh, be exposed to this thinking and this this rich views of of Peter and Claire.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally agree, and I even I thought both of their answers to the to that final question that you posed, Aris, was was really good and I want our our listeners to hang with those a bit because I think they're they're provocations that come up so much on on this podcast and in our work and in this work in general. You know, when when they're talking about how they're trying to, in their new work, theorize like a, a project of how to scale this, right? How to move from like the microscope and the everyday experience of conspiracy kind of on the ground in people's lives to the kind of macro, to the telescope, to the big data and the way that power can flow across technology. I think trying to theorize that scale is something that we're, I think, all trying to do in some ways, how how they move, how things move from one to the other and what happens in the middle, in the mezzo. And I think that for me is what's really important here. And I also really liked um, kind of Claire's point at the end about like, can we have like a secrecy of the left? Can we have like a public secret? Can we have radical secrets? Or is our only hope like some sort of watered down kind of liberal transparency? And as she posed that, I, I sort of thought, yeah, it it really does seem like the kind of conspiring, conspiratorialism, having having secrets, um, which is really, again, at the core of, I think what we're trying to do with a lot of the counter gaming and counter conspiracies and, you know, counter counter insurgencies is, you know, how do you maybe sometimes not so much always just shy away from these things and be like, they're bad and we need to deconstruct them with rationalism, but be like, well, maybe there's a way to use things like the conspiracy and things like the corporation you know as as vectors for for left transformation and and progressive organizing so for me those were some things that kind of really really stuck out and yeah um really i think a really great interview yeah um
2: i just want to echo that i think it's also it's it's been really great to have these folks uh on you know i think that they're they're really uh incredible uh thinkers who for you know both of them for a number of years have really been giving us incredible critical scholarship on conspiracies that on the one hand is like maps out the diversity of power relations that go into this thing we call conspiracy theories doesn't participate in the kind of um pathologization of the conspiracy theory that's just so common among um you know essentially defenders of the status quo Uh, like you uh adam i want to I want to follow up on that kind of final point and, and hear Peter's final point that, you know, I think it's an intriguing one to consider that, you know, as he points out in the, in the late 19th, early 20th century, the trade union movement began to reconceive of their own capacity to organize collectively based on the example of the very forces that were oppressing and exploiting them, which is to say the emergent form of the corporation uh, or this sort of mass industrial uh, monopoly corporation something really really rich there and though he's left us with something of a riddle um and i suppose maybe just two two points then that i think link back to what we've been discussing throughout the podcast this season i mean one of them is just that um you know i think one of the things that conspiracy conspiracy theories and their popularity revealed to us is just the the incredible power of the imagination um you know these are feats of the collective imagination that you know in spite of all the fact that there are major sort of influencers and nodes and often conspiracy theories are propounded cynically and centrally really these are often works of the collective imagination in ways that have something to tell us about the human capacity to create worlds and then bring those worlds into being for both good and for ill and if we can, if if that power is before us, then it behooves us not only to condemn it, but also to wonder to what other ends it could be put. Um, and I think that's very exciting. And the second thing is just to say that often, though, you know, we imagine the imagination as this limitless force that comes to us from the great beyond. But no, it, the imagination is shaped by worldly forces. And I think, I think Peter's point that the imagination of the trade union movement was so so much forged within the force fields of power that uh, we're constraining and shaping workers lives is really important. So I suppose where this goes for me is to wonder, you know, what are both the possibilities and the limits for the collective imagination in this moment? And perhaps, you know, on some level, the the task before us is not exactly to create a kind of counter conspiracy as such in in a conventional sense in the way that you know we might go out and and try and map out an explanation for the way the power in the world works um based on sort of charismatic uh personages uh as if the world could be explained so simply but rather to think through like what is What are the the fears, what are the anxieties, what are the hopes and dreams on which conspiracy theories today feed, and how might the energies that are released in those anxieties, uh, how else could they be redirected towards other kinds of imaginative ends with people coming together, especially using the kind of technological uh, tools and or weapons that have been uh, so disastrously deployed and so horrifically mobilized by so far-right conspiracy culture. But yes, just a
1: just a plug for the power of the imagination again. You've been listening to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, season two of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. For more information about this podcast, to listen to
0: other episodes or to learn about the broader project of which it's a part, please visit conspiracy.games.